Welcome to Speculative Futures, Israel. My name is Michael Phillips Moskowitz, your host, and the next hour will be devoted to establishing a few ground rules. The who, the what, the where and the why. The when and the how will come later. I should explain why I'm even doing this. Many will wonder why I would want to wander or stroll casually into a minefield. What on earth gives me the gall, the temerity, the license, nerve or chutzpah to even address this topic? Well, there's a myth, some would say a fable, an allegory, that you might have heard about an 18-wheeler, a truck, a semi, you know, a commercial transport vehicle. Well, the story goes it became hopelessly and irretrievably lodged underneath a freeway overpass, and the accident blocked traffic for miles. Cops were called. The fire department was dispatched. Civil engineers came to the scene. At first, they tried dragging the behemoth out, with a large tow truck, that didn't work. They tried two tow trucks, then three, never with success. They debated cutting the truck apart, which would take hours, and the traffic jam was already catastrophic. They even debated cutting the bridge itself apart, which would take even longer, and it would be far costlier. But then a kid, just a kid, sitting in a station wagon, right behind the initial pileup, well, he spoke up. And he said, why don't you just remove the air from the tires? Well, you know what? It worked. Sometimes you get unexpected solutions from unexpected people in unexpected places. The aim here is to try to do things differently. That's why there are at least a couple of critical acknowledgments or confessions that I need to make from the very outset. Call them caveats. We know this is a tricky topic, an incendiary subject. And this series, written and read in English, is primarily for American and European listeners. We assume there will be some Israelis and some Palestinians may tune in. We will make some assumptions about a basic understanding of the region. And in some instances, will provide more detail and specificity than might be required for an average listener in the region. It's also important to state from the outset, I'm an American Jew living in Germany, currently as a visiting scholar at the New Institute. And this is an idea, it's a perspective, that only really made sense to present or explore as a speculative future. Not as a book, not a monograph, not a policy paper, and certainly not a piece of journalism. The only way to really lay out this idea was by combining elements of rigorous academic research with design sketches and a roadmap. These are serious suggestions backed up by serious research. It might not be the way Michael Oren would do it, but I'm not Michael Oren. Maybe you can think of this as an attempt to sting people out of complacency. That's the point of a provocation. And that's what this is. It's a sacrificial idea. At best, it's a proposal for a triangle offense, a new system of play. At worst, it's a concept car. We can't yet prove its torque or record its top speed, but we hope to one day smell the burn of its tires as it tears around a test track. So, 
In that spirit, see what you think. We hope you'll listen and at least consider these approaches, not as an authoritative blueprint, but as a sketch. Just a sketch. It will evolve, and with luck, someday grow into an operational strategy that improves the lives of everyone living between the Mediterranean and Dead Sea. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Arabs, Arameans, Armenians, Assyrians, Bedouins, Copts, Druze, even refugees from across Asia and Africa, and of course, the Palestinian people. Chapter two, the challenge landscape. So where do you start? Should we, do you, go back to Adam and Eve and biblical Eden? Or do you start with Noah, amateur zoologist, carpenter, reluctant sailor? Some insist that this story has to start with Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. Okay. Others say nay, Jacob. He is, after all, the namesake of Israel, earning the title by wrestling with God for an entire night, as outlined in Genesis. It matters where you start, but we'll get to the historical record and ancient highlights later, and address a more modern framing in episode four. For now, at least with respect to Israel's shifting role in the world and the relevance of recent events in the region, including Israel's four recent accords with other Arab countries, we're going to bypass Oslo and get straight into it. You mean Oslo, the peace process? This, by the way, is Georg Dietz. He is the editorial director and chief curator at the New Institute, previously a fellow at Harvard. Remind me again, why would you skip that? That could have been the end of the story. Meaning, if everything had worked out at Camp David in 2000, this, remember, this is before 9-11, this is before the Iraq War, it could have broadly been a new Middle East. There different, may not have even been a story to tell. Different world. Right. And there have been multiple failed attempts. So... We're going to treat, you know, get into that a bit later, but... Politics kicked in. You said politics is a problem. Yeah, it's a little bit. You know, this is Israel after all. So it's but, an elegant way to bypass the Bible and Oslo and all of that to get to the 21st century. Yeah, there's a lot to cover. And that's why we're going to start with maybe the more digestible pieces first and the ones that are urgently or immediately applicable to the moment. And then we'll circle back and address a bit of the Oslo piece with David Makovsky from the Washington Institute. But that comes later. So we're going to start with the Abraham Accords. Great. During the final few months of the Trump administration, notwithstanding the disarray or decay or deterioration and near descent into chaos, there were several significant diplomatic developments that received scarcely little attention in the press. Some characterized these deals as a naked and empty exercise in global PR by the White House. Others, particularly in Israel, thought of it as an attempt by the Netanyahu administration to distract Israelis from his ongoing corruption case. Bibi's in trouble. Whatever their motivation, the Abraham Accords are significant. The swift and successive diplomatic breakthroughs between Israel and Bahrain, Israel and the UAE, Israel and Morocco, which might complicate affairs for the Department of State under Biden, plus Israel and Sudan, if you can believe it, all augur positively for trade and development in the region. Now, this is not to assume that a new Middle East will rise or break out as envisioned and broadly written about by Shimon Peres in the late 1990s, but it does present new possibilities, 
and opportunities, which we'll discuss in episode three. You know, I don't want to claim that I'm the author of all this. This is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute, director of the Coret Project on Arab-Israel Relations, and he also served in the Office of Secretary of State during the Obama administration as a senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. But, I mean, those of us who've worked on this issue have understood the difference between what is a top-down approach, uh, what is a bottom-up approach, what is outside-in and what is inside-out. And that is the top-down and more the formal negotiations where it begins with governments, between governments. And the bottom-up was more the institutional frameworks of creating more, um, you know, civil society and the like. Like we saw during the Salam Fayyad premiership of the West Bank between 2007 and 2013. And that was really a focus on building institutions, which, you know, he told me that, you know, he got a lot of his inspiration by reading Zionist history, that the Zionists built the state from 1917 to 1947. And so by, by the time 48 came around, when they had declared the state, they had built the state. The, the outside in was more of um, an idea that was more popularized, I would say, at the start of the Trump administration. Then I think it was originally conceived of how to use Gulf Arab states to maybe even twist arms of the Palestinians and the like. Now, it the Emiratis in 2020 went with it in a different direction, seeing that the Trump peace map and everything hit a hit a wall, so to speak, and so did the annexation debate, and then they kind of swept in. But I don't think that was what was envisaged. The point four of the inside out is to say that was more the, I would say, the, the, the historic kind of Arab peace initiative of 2002, which was to say solve the Palestinian issue first, and then... Israel can, you know, make peace with other Arab states. But what we've seen is that that paradigm has really collapsed in a, a certain way because the Arab states waited 18 years from 2002 to 2020, and they deferred their own sense of bilateral interest with Israel and uh, for a peace agreement that never came. And the, the region changed in 18 years. Issues like ISIS, the issue of Iran's regional footprint and, and maligned activity, the issues of other, um, the role of the Muslim Brotherhood, and even of Turkey, frankly, of its leadership. A lot of those ideas really shifted the way that these Arab states thought that, you know, we'll just defer our own interests. And instead, they decided, you know, we want to reach our own normalization agreements and the Palestinian issue could follow. And, and, and that's when I coined this phrase uh, that I know it's, it's, it's done well because it's come back at me a bunch of times, and that is the issue of a bridge versus a bypass road. In other words, is Israel's peace agreements with the Arab states a way of circumventing the Palestinian issue, or could this be used as a way to really navigate and... Uh, the terrain so you could bring the Israelis and Palestinians closer. And I see that historically, Egypt, Jordan, they got into peacemaking after they made their treaties with Israel, not before. So I think the bridge is, is, a, is a valuable kind of metaphor. And uh, instead of cursing the United Arab Emirates and the others, I think 
the Palestinians should reach out and instead of curse, coax them to to use their considerable resources to you know to help Palestinian life in the West Bank and and even to help you know bring Israelis and the Palestinians closer. I'm sure you know this, but you know people that closely monitor the region and are at least superficially familiar with the failures of Oslo uh, might very well suffer the effects of you know, the warping of history, assuming that it was never going to work out, assuming that it was somehow doomed from the outset, which certainly didn't seem clear back then. Given the portion of your life that you've devoted to studying these issues, what do you think were the missing pieces, P-I-E-C-E-S, in the missing piece, P-E-A-C-E? I mean, there are some lessons certainly that are commonly mentioned, floated, bandied about, but what do you think is often missed by diplomats and journalists and politicians? Well, people miss when you know there are people certainly on the right in Israel who talk about the failure of Oslo, but what they don't take into account is the fact that it has withstood all these shocks to the region, whether it's terrorism, uh, intifada, a second intifada, the death of Arafat, the, the stagnation of the Palestinian Authority, the split with Hamas. The fact that Bibi Netanyahu has been the prime minister for most of his time, if you would have asked anyone, Netanyahu, who was, you know, was a, a virulent critic of Oslo before he came to office, that under his tenure, Oslo would remain and uh, the, the institutional links would deepen, I don't think anybody would believe you. So what, what, what we've seen is, and that, oh, and the final piece that no one would have believed is that the leadership on the right, let's say Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, that in the 90s wanted to roll back Oslo. If you sit with them today and you say, Naftali, do you want to claim sovereignty to areas A and B? Those are the two parts of where the Palestinian Authority exists. That means all Palestinian cities are called A areas. Hebron is a little complicated. And B areas are the, the environs outside of the urban areas. And that that 40%... You know, Israel will not challenge. And he goes, are you crazy, David? There's no way we're going we're gonna to try for sovereignty in that area. That's Palestinian. So there's been a shift in the right. You know, the same right-wingers who talk about how Oslo was doomed and Oslo failed are the same people who now don't want to challenge the premises of Oslo, of that the PA exists, that the security cooperation between Israel and the Palestinians exists. There have been a thousand reasons if Netanyahu wanted to scuttle, dismantle the PA, he could have done it easily. He didn't. There's a reason. And that is because he doesn't want Israel, to, I think, to be a, you know, a, a one-state solution, because that means that Israel's in charge of everything, and that will have implications uh, ultimately on who votes. So I think what's happened is that while the failure of, Oxy, of Oslo became axiomatic for some, no one was looking that the same people sustained it. And now, it's, it was in mid-gear. Yes, that's true. And, you know, the toughest issues that were deferred under the incrementalism of Oslo, you know, have not been resolved. But it, at the same time, it hasn't been rolled back. And, and it, look, these are core issues that are objectively difficult when you're dealing with such emotionally and religiously charged issues like Jerusalem, when you're dealing with issues like the right of return, you know, the, people would rather, def on the Palestinian side, have rather defined success not by what is attained, by, but by what is not given away. I mean, it's often been said that the outside end could have either been the United States and Russia, it could have been the P5, it could have been the EU, Arab League, United States and Russia. Does the fact that a complete outsider 
who was able to have, you know, to upend 30 years of conventional wisdom, or you can even call it 70 years of conventional wisdom in Foggy Bottom, to have this kind of success, does it augur in any specific way positively? Does it open up a new uh, operational modality for, United, for U.S. foreign relations? I mean, what do the Abraham Accords signal or create in terms of new opportunities in diplomacy, not just facts on the ground? Look, what, what has to be said is that while I think gradualism is the only way. I, I believe that what the United States at the end of the 90s internalized with Oslo, and the first time it was called for in, in the Oslo Agreement itself, which was to deal with these core issues, is that the U.S. internalized the Palestinian position whereby gradualism has limits. You're going to ultimately have to deal with these core issues. And that was Camp David. But like I said, the, the, the Venn diagram here never overlapped. And for the Palestinians, I think for Arafat and Abbas, in different ways, they're very different people. But they didn't want to be recorded in Arab history as the person who compromised on, on these core questions. It's better to say I was a purist. I didn't give it away. But you didn't achieve it either. But to them, it was more important not to yield than to be viewed as as kind of compromising rights. So the U.S. on three occasions, Camp David 2000, Condoleezza Rice's Annapolis process of 2007-8 effort. I was a part of 2013-14 under Kerry. All those three things were an effort to really grapple with the Palestinian critique of the limitations of gradualism and try to hit the home run ball, so to speak, or to put it in European words, maybe to try to hit the, you know, to try to win the marathon. So I'm saying when you try to swing for the fences, you often strike out and you're better off hitting some singles. And if you can't run the 25, you know, K marathon, 26, you know, run a 5K race, but achieve something, get somewhere. And the all or nothing, what we know in the Middle East is one thing. Whenever it's all or nothing in the Mideast, it's nothing. And so I think these three efforts by the United States to internalize the Palestinians' critique about the limitations of gradualism have, have, have hit a wall. And, and therefore, I think there needs to be a return to gradualism. Now, if the Abraham Accords uh, countries can assist, like I was saying before, I think they can. I think in particular the Emirates, I think there should be a, like a network of normalizing states who will have hundreds of touch points with Israel in a way that Arab states haven't before. And I think that that's, that's the bridge, and, and, that, and we should work on that uh, beyond all the bilateral benefits for the countries individually. I mean, that is driven by much bigger sets of considerations. The, uh, you know, the fact that the Gulf Arab Sea, uh, the new energy dynamics in the United States with alternative energy and fracking and all this, and they're saying, hey, you know, you, you, you say how energy independent we are. We don't need the Middle East, so who's going to care about us? And I think that has drawn the Gulf states and Israel closer uh, because there's aligned regional thinking about Iran, uh, as I mentioned before, about some of the jihadi groups as, a, as among the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood and even the Turkish leadership, all different and different. But the, this aligned regional thinking is part of it. But to, to fill the vacuum with the U.S. retrenchment from the Middle East. And the second piece of it is the, is the clear economic consequences that emerge from these new dynamics, which is if I'm in the Gulf Arab, I've got to think about diversifying my economy in the post-oil age. And I need people who are my digital partners in, in this diversification. And here Israel comes very much uh, to the fore. And you have this real 
this synergy between the Gulf capital and the Israeli technological entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that is really um, important. And it's the, these are like the twin engines, the, 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 the geopolitics of, 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 of what does it mean to be in a post-oil age? And also, what are the economic implications for these Arab states? And they feel Israel can, can help. I was really struck, Michael, but being in Abu Dhabi right before COVID, when a senior Emirati official said to me, David, look, we don't know what the U.S. is, is going to pull out of the Middle East or not. Trump had just made a decision that was viewed as very hostile to the Kurds in Syria. We don't know what Trump's going to do. We don't know what America's going to do. But we know there's one country that cannot afford to leave the Middle East because they live in the Middle East. That's Israel. So I think that this sense of these broad major profound forces that uh, have international and regional implications is le leading to this rethink. And it's what brought Israel and, and, and some of these Arab states closer. You've actually explicitly stated and written that what you'd like to see or anticipate seeing is that the Accords will marry Gulf capital with Israeli entrepreneurial spirit. Bibi's recipe was, you know, very broadly, crudely speaking, terrorism, tech, and intel, or some derivation thereof. Can you anticipate or help us, uh, you know, can you, can you paint a somewhat more vibrant picture? It's not a prediction, but what it, might it look like if you're taking the Israeli entrepreneurial spirit or the Israeli yeah. entrepreneurial know-how and applying it in some of these Arab societies, not just Gulf states, but Arab yeah. societies. Can you imagine how, so it's not just a superficial importing of uh, data practice and you know fiber optic cable. How this all might play out? I think it's it's a it's a very good point that you raise, which is you know with all this green tech uh, focus on food security issues, there's a lot of things that are not just mutually beneficial to these uh, Israel Emirates bilateral, but will have broader desalination. That will have implications beyond these countries in Africa and elsewhere. I think you know the the idea of finding common solutions bilaterally will have real excellent third-party implications. So I, I do see that this will have a, a wider world. And you look at what the Emirati officials are saying publicly in this regard, they believe that as well. So um, is the security piece part of this? Yes. But is it the only part of it? No. It's, it's, it's one piece of it, a key piece, but it's not the only piece. And I think that this will have broader implications. Look, I think just on the on the bilateral side, you could say, look, the the um, the Emirati uh, sovereign wealth funds are like one point three trillion dollars. It's staggering, and uh, Israel is a country of what six thousand, some ten thousand, whatever it is, startups that are all looking for backing. I mean. The whole idea of these sovereign wealth funds is to identify successful ventures and the like that will, you know, will yield economic benefit. So I think the, that's why I call it the, the marrying of Gulf uh, capital with the Israeli entrepreneurial spirit. When you think, Michael, in the big picture, the peace with Egypt and Jordan were really strategic 
for both sides, but it was really a government-to-government peace till this day, really, that the peace treaties were based on the idea of, you know, where is the territorial line? Where does the military stand? Now, you know, they, they, it's not like they're on, a, on high alert. The, the fact is, is that Israel's best relationship with the Arab worlds is with the Arab militaries. And that's kind of counterintuitive to people. But that's where Israel and Egypt are dealing with ISIS and the Sinai, and they're dealing with Hamas and Gaza. And Israel is trying to help Jordan with ISIS and whatever's left of it in Syria and other unstable forces in, in Iraq. And I don't want to be saying anything to diminish its, its significance. But what's beautiful about this one is that this round of normalizations has the, the prospect, the potential of being a peace between peoples in a way that these other peace agreements were not. There's no baggage. These guys never fought each other on the battlefield. They're not contiguous to each other. And they only see upside. And so the fact that you had 140,000, you've seen numbers, uh, maybe a little less, of, of Israelis during a pandemic, tour, engaging in tourism during a pandemic, what does that tell you about the, of the potential here? And so... I think if I was a young person saying I want to follow an exciting story, I would want to follow this story. If I was interested in technology or if I was interested in tourism, if I was interested in venture capital, or I want to see is the Arab-Israel conflict, you know, emerging into something else, morphing into something much more positive, because this could be a people-to-people peace that we have not really seen before. It's a pretty exciting time. It's a chance to rethink opportunities for common solutions in the region. And there's far more here to explore, which we will. In the meantime, as David points out, the power of the Emirati Sovereign Wealth Funds is just staggering. Abu Dhabi alone manages almost $700 billion. Add in the other emirates, and it comfortably exceeds a trillion. What you'll hear more about in episode three is how, with the injection of just $8.3 billion in hyper-targeted dollars, we could completely reshape the Israeli economy as we know it. We'll walk you through the model we built with real numbers. We'll illustrate the requirements and the implications. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more from David, make sure to check out his podcast at The Washington Institute. If you'd like to hear more from us and about the three main pillars of this vision, which are, if you remember, spirituality, or treating Israel as arable soil for spiritual endeavor, economy, turning Israel into the world's first true technocracy, and the treatment of trauma at scale, tune in for the next several episodes where we'll explore and dimensionalize each of these areas as the underpinning of what you might call or think of as a platform for national renewal. For now, we'd like to thank the inimitable Devendra Banhart for composing and producing an entirely original score for the series. We'd like to thank Mainland Media in Berlin for their support with recording and mixing. And of course, we have to emphasize our appreciation for the enormous aid and efforts of Basia Rosenblum and Samuel Feldman for their tireless research support. Join us next time when we speak with theologians and scholars about this notion of treating Israel as fertile soil for spiritual enterprise. You can also visit us online at the New Institute. That's the new dot institute. I'm your host, Michael Phelps Moskowitz, signing off and saying aloha from the island of Berlin and shalom.